This message by Bill Kittrell was recorded during a Sunday celebration service for Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Bill serves as a senior pastor on staff at Cornerstone Church. Good morning, everyone. I'm sorry to interrupt, but please open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 4 as we begin this morning, the much-anticipated series on the Sermon on the Mount. Hopefully. Matthew chapter 4, we're going to read down through Matthew 5, 12, just to read all the Beatitudes, but we're really going to be focusing today on the first one in verse 3 of chapter 5, and then next week we'll cover the rest. I would like to say Mike knows nothing about gaining 15 pounds. (laughs) Nothing. For those of you who do know something about gaining 15 pounds like me, I would just like to say I should have given that announcement. Matthew chapter 4. Verse 23. And he, Jesus, went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, His disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek. For they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful. For they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart. For they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers. For they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great. In heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 
This is God's holy word, inerrant. I, I want to pray and ask for the gift of illumination. Father, illuminate the eyes of our heart. Let us have ears to hear what your word says. Lord, I pray you'd bless this congregation. Bless the people in this room. Bless them, Lord, according to these exhortations and promises, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I think our main point today is be different. Because Christ died on the cross that you could live out the Sermon on the Mount. Go and be different. Because Christ died to enable you to live out the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 6 verse 8, Jesus said, do not be like them. What does it really mean to follow Jesus? In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is answering that question. If you're going to follow Christ, what's your life going to look like? How do you live? You live like this. Those who receive the kingdom live like those who apply the Sermon on the Mount, and it means you live differently. This, this sermon describes what life and community, what life and relationships look like when Jesus' followers come under his gracious rule. The gracious rule of King Jesus into the kingdom of heaven where he is king. In summary, he teaches his true followers that they're to be entirely different from others. They're not to take their cues from the people around them. They're to take their cues from him. This, this is the evidence that they really are children of their heavenly father. They live like this. It's a theme throughout the Sermon on the Mount. Do not be like them. We can anticipate this in this series. We're going to be encouraged. Do not be like them. It's foundational to understanding what Jesus is teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. I'm going to do something I don't normally do, and that's use a, an illustration from sports. I normally don't do that because this is a very unathletic congregation. <laughs> I, I play golf. I'm not very good, but I play golf, and I, I like to watch golf. I've watched it for years. If you are a golf fan, you know about the new Live Golf series. It actually stands. It's pronounced live, but it stands for the Roman numeral 54 because they've changed the format. Apparently, for hundreds of years, we've been playing golf wrongly. So instead of 72 holes, now they're playing 54. They have a different format in other ways, too. There's a team element in the competition, etc. But without question, the greatest difference between the Live Tour and the PGA Tour is money. 
They guarantee every person who plays in its tournaments a six-figure payout. There are, there are 48 competitors in each tournament. There's a $20 million purse every week, a total of $255 million in prize money for just eight tournaments. So the top 10 finishers are going to earn somewhere between $4 million and $540,000 every tournament. The, the, the last on the list gets $120,000. There are no cuts, unlike the PGA Tour. Everybody goes home with $120,000. Not very much, I'm sure you would think, but... They, they paid out, in their first tournament, $521,000 on average to every player. The Masters, if you're a golf fan, one of the biggest tournaments in golf, pays out 288000 These guys have a lot of money. Most of the news have been around superstars like Phil Mickelson and Dustin Johnson and others who've just got massive payouts. Dustin Johnson got more money for one tournament than Tiger Woods had earned in his whole career in the PGA Tour. He's one of the greatest golfers in history. He has taken a stand against the Live Tour and I've become a Tiger fan. <laughs> Back in June, the PGA Tour said, if you sign up with them, you can't play with us. There's a massive lawsuit. Today is September 11th. As Jeff was praying about that, that's when terrorists in 2001 flew planes into the World Trade Center in New York City and Pentagon, Washington, D.C., and they killed thousands of people. There was a heated press conference in June where Phil Mickelson, one of the golfers, responded to a question regarding whether or not he had considered Americans who died in 9-11 when he made the decision to play in this tour. Why was that? Because it's how they're funded. They don't have TV contracts. That's how all these sports leagues make money. That's how the PGA Tour makes money. Live is funded by the Saudi Public Investment Fund, Saudi Arabia. It's a, it's a sovereign wealth fund of their kingdom. It has $600 billion in it. They estimate it'll have a trillion dollars in a few years. So they have deep pockets, and that's where they get all their money. But there are... There are questions raised about this, as you would imagine. So, my question is, how should a Christian golfer respond to an offer from Live Golf? And I was curious enough to call our friend, William Kane, who works for College Golf Fellowship and relates to the Christians on the PGA Tour, and is dealing with this question. I knew he would be. So, I called him and I told him, studying the Sermon on the Mount, be different. Well, how are you counseling these guys? What a, what a phone call. It is very complicated. It is very complex. But I wasn't surprised that, that William was very wise. And it, wisdom boils things down. And so he was giving them great counsel. And if they follow his counsel, they're going to do very well. So followers of Christ. You know, nobody in here is going to be offered millions of dollars to play in a golf tournament. But 
we are going to face being citizens of the kingdom and living in a fallen world. It's a good time for these golfers to study the Sermon on the Mount. For example, Jesus says in this sermon, do not lay up treasures for yourself on earth. Lay up treasures for yourself in heaven. We're going to study that passage. The reason he gives for that it may surprise you. Because where your treasure is, he says, that's where your heart's going to be. And that's what I noticed about William's counsel. What he was concerned about was their heart. Keep your heart is what his counsel was, in essence. From it flow the springs of life in the midst of all the millions of dollars. Keep your heart. Again, we're not going to be tempted with millions, but we are going to be tempted. Seeking to follow Jesus Christ, living a kingdom life in a fallen world is complicated, isn't it? And this sermon is for us. And it says, do not be like them. Let's set the stage for studying this sermon. The most famous sermon ever preached. And John Stott says this about it. This sermon is probably the best known part of the teaching of Jesus, though arguably it is the least understood and certainly it is the least obeyed. <laughs> so to understand what this sermon teaches, we, we need to be clear on the context, and it's not unimportant if we want to understand it and obey it. It's part of a pattern in Matthew's gospel. It's special because it's, it's a large amount of teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ, but it's really one of five such discourses in the gospel of Matthew. It actually follows a very predictable pattern in this gospel. It, it's part of a structure that the author had for this gospel to tell a story. All these five parts fit together. In the, in the five sections, the gospel of Matthew, each begins with a narrative, and it's followed by a teaching section, and then it ends with a transition statement. You can find these. Section one that we're in begins in chapters three and four, where Matthew introduces the kingdom. And then these chapters, chapters five through seven, the, the teaching material in this section that we call the Sermon on the Mount is like the others, focused on Jesus' teaching. And then when he is done in Matthew 7, Matthew writes, when Jesus finished these sayings. You can find that in chapter 11, chapter 13, chapter 19, chapter 26, after each section ends. He is preaching the gospel of the kingdom in chapter 4 in the narrative material, and now this is teaching about how you receive the kingdom, how you enter the kingdom. And after having received the kingdom, here's how you live as those who have submitted their lives to King Jesus. Here's how you, you live. And that, that drew us to the Sermon on the Mount to do a series on it. Because we want to think about what it means these days to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. 
that the key, one of the keys, one of the themes of the Sermon on the Mount is this idea of kingdom. And I was thinking about it, and I was thinking about how much I hate passwords. Do you hate passwords? I am so tired of passwords. I'm, I'm forever getting asked, what's my password? Some are for things I set up years ago. I mean, years ago. I can't remember what I had for breakfast, and they want me to remember a password that I set up for Microsoft in 1985. And of course, you'll say, well, you should write these things down. You're becoming your parents, man. I'm not going to write these things down. I wish I could do one password, just one password. I could remember that. But no, no, you can't do one password. I mean, they tell you that would be unwise. You'll get robbed if you just have one password. Rob me, beat me, do anything. You know, some require lowercase, uppercase, special characters. So you can't just have one because this guy wants that and that guy wants this. And I'm just ordering a pizza, man. I mean, <laughs> really? I, I, I've thought about running for president. I could be elected just saying we're outlawing passwords. There will be no more passwords in the world today. Well, Jesus' yoke is easy and his burden is light. There is an easy password for the Sermon on the Mount. Something that will help you not misunderstand what he is saying. Just remember, kingdom. Kingdom. That's the password. That's what this sermon is about. It's about his kingdom. It's very clear. He sets it up with the narrative in chapters 3 and 4, chapter 5. Here it is. Pulls its disciples aside. This is what it means to be a follower of Christ. This is what it means to be in the kingdom. To belong to the kingdom of heaven is to be the sort of person that walks by faith in repentance. The, the reign of King Jesus has begun in your life. You say, I put myself under this king, and I, I live by his rules. Here's what it looks like. This, this sermon is about discipleship. He saw the crowds. He went up on the mountain, verse 1, chapter 5. He sat down, and his disciples, not the crowd, his disciples came to him. He wasn't teaching the crowds, and he has his disciples and he says to them, do not be like them. The, the sermon describes what life, what community is like when Jesus is your king. John Stott says this, the Sermon on the Mount is the most complete delineation anywhere in the New Testament of the Christian counterculture. Here is a Christian value system. It's different. If you're in the kingdom and you're a golfer, you will respond different to your offer because we have a different value system, a different ethical standard, religious devotion, attitude to money, ambition, lifestyle, network of relationships, all of which 
are totally at variance with those of the non-Christian world. And this Christian counterculture is the life of the kingdom of God, a life lived out under the divine rule of Jesus the King. So, there is an understanding that lies behind the whole sermon. You have to be born again. You have to be born again. You have to have the Holy Spirit powerfully at work in your life to live this sermon out. You have to have entered the kingdom of heaven. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who did the greatest work I've ever read on the Sermon on the Mount, he said this, the Beatitudes crush me to the ground. If someone does live like Christ, if someone lives out the Sermon on the Mount, it's a miracle. And that's why God gets all the glory. It's a miracle. It's evidence of grace. It's the new birth. It's the power of the Spirit. It makes a person shine in a dark world. Lord John says, that, that is the challenge that comes to you and to me. We claim to believe that the Son of God has come into the world and has sent his own Holy Spirit into us. His own absolute power that will reside in men and women and make them live a quality of life like his own. He came, I say, and lived and died and rose again and sent the Holy Spirit in order that you and I might live the Sermon on the Mount. If only all of us were living the Sermon on the Mount. This man loved revival. And that's what he's talking about. Men would know that there is a dynamic in the Christian gospel. They would know that this is a live thing. They would not go looking for anything else. They would say, here it is. When the world sees the truly Christian man or woman, it only feels condemned, but it's drawn, it's, it's attracted. And when men and women have taken this sermon seriously, may we take this sermon seriously. True revival has come. You want revival? Pray that we live out the Sermon on the Mount. For it not only states the demand, it points to the supply. The Lord isn't bringing us here to condemn us. Oh, he's, he's bringing us here to give us a vision to the source of power. God gives us grace to face the Sermon on the Mount seriously and honestly and prayerfully until we become living examples of it. That's, that's why we're doing this series. That's why we're going to have second Sunday ministry time at the end of this message. And I, I just want to appeal to you. If right now there, there's something resonating in your heart, come and let us pray for you to be filled with the Spirit. Oh, transformed that you may live this sermon out. Two, two mistakes before we plunge into the Beatitudes. Two mistakes 
for approaching this sermon. Now, now there was one scholar that said there, there are 36 different ways to interpret this sermon. D.A. Carson said there were eight. So you should be nice to me. I'm doing two. <laughs> Number one, thinking of the sermon as a legalistic summons to obedience. A, a mistake. If you come to this sermon and you think Jesus is giving you rules that he wants you to obey so you can enter the kingdom, that's a mistake. It can be taught like this, can it? And certainly Jesus wants us to obey. At the end of this gospel, remember he gives the great commission and he says, all authority is given to him, go into all the nations, teach them to observe all I've commanded you. He wants obedience. He expects his followers to obey, but not without grace. You'd be missing the whole point of the gospel, wouldn't you? In Matthew chapter 1, kind of the beginning of the gospel, the, the angel says to Joseph, Mary's going to bear a son, and you're going to name him Jesus because he's going to save his people from their sins. It's, it's not, the, the gospel of Matthew is not about, you can enter the kingdom if you keep my rules. You can enter the kingdom if you don't sin. You can, you can enter, the good news is not that if you're perfect, then you can come in. That's not the good news. The good news is he's come to save you from your sins. But Sinclair Ferguson says some people view this sermon as a message calculated to produce the greatest possible guilt in the fewest possible chapters. Now that is not our goal. I trust that won't be how we'll understand the Sermon on the Mount. We enter the kingdom by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Another, another mistake, thinking of the sermon as instructions for how to change society. Instructions for social progress. Even some, some folks would say for revolution. It was interesting, it's interesting to read Lloyd-Jones because he, he, he was preaching in the 50s. And so he's talking all the time about communism. He's talking the, the world wars have just ended. It's just a different picture. It's a different time. Same problem. Same problem. And there's no question that as people are transformed by the gospel and, and they live out the Sermon on the Mount, the world's a better place. If everyone lived this sermon out, there, there would be social progress. Amen? But Jesus is teaching, again, he's teaching his disciples. This is what it looks like when you enter the kingdom of heaven. It's not a message for the whole world. It's not a message that he's bringing to the whole world so there'll be world peace. He isn't addressing the crowds, the nations. If we think that's what it's about... We will make a mistake and pursue the wrong mission. Why are there wars in the world? Why, why all the tension? 
Lloyd-Jones talked about the, the failure of the League of Nations. And then he prophesied about the United Nations and said, it'll probably fail too. It was just starting. What's the matter with the world? Uh, according to the Sermon on the Mount, there's only one answer to that question. Sin. The explanation of all the troubles is human lust, greed, selfishness, self-centeredness. That's what's the matter with the world. It's, the solution isn't political. It's not economic. It's not environmental. According to this sermon, it's theological. But the world is blind. It will never recognize this. And so... Much time and effort and money is wasted trying to fix a fallen world whose problem is sin. We, we have to keep our eye on our mission. We're going to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. The Beatitudes. Beginning... Matthew chapter 5, verse 2, he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, The first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There are eight so-called beatitudes. And you might think they're called beatitudes because, well, they're telling us the kinds of attitudes we ought to be. But that... That isn't the case. I mean, I'm probably the only one that thought that. <laughs> I have a little problem with the English language, if you haven't noticed. But the word, word is just a coincidence. It's, it's actually, beatitude comes from the Latin word, which is translating a Greek word, which means blessed, fortunate, happy. And some English translations will translate this happy, but I think that's a mistake because of the way we think about happiness. We think of happiness as an experience, but blessed here in these verses is, is talking about our relationship with God. It's talking about an objective position in relation to God, in relation to his kingdom, his spiritual kingdom. It's, it's talking about a position that we have in relation to his promises. Blessed is a great translation. It's a good word. We just want to make sure we understand what it means. William Barclay in his book on contentment says, While life in the Western world has dramatically improved over the last several decades, the level of happiness and contentment has declined. We live in the age of discontent. These beatitudes are relevant. Oh, follower of Christ, I want you to be blessed. I don't want you to be caught up in this age of discontent. I don't want you to be depressed. I want you to be happy. Blessed is a term that is used throughout the Old Testament. We're very aware of it. It's all about your relationship with God, isn't it? There are blessings and there are curses. 
And, and if you are blessed, it, it's based on something objective, a position. You're blessed because you have fellowship with God. You have a right relationship with Him. Several commentators recommend another word to capture the meaning of the Greek word behind the translation blessed. And they, they recommend congratulations. Congratulations, you are happy. See how it gets at that objective reality? You are happy, congratulations. So you can scratch out blessed and just write in there, congratulations, you are happy. You are fortunate. You are to be envied by everyone. Congratulations. Jesus says, these exhortations, these are the kind of people that are to be congratulated because they are the only ones truly happy. This is the sort of man or woman who is blessed and to be congratulated. Lloyd-Jones again, happiness is the great question confronting mankind. The whole world is longing for happiness. And it's tragic to observe the ways in which people are seeking it. Remember, this was written in the 50s. The vast majority, alas, are doing so in a way that is bound to produce misery. That's, that's where the utter deceitfulness of sin comes in. It is always offering happiness, and it always leads to unhappiness. The Sermon on the Mount says, however, that if you really want to be happy, here's the way. This and this alone is the type of person who is truly, who is really blessed. This is the sort of person who is to be congratulated. So in these Beatitudes, Jesus is given the details of the person who will be blessed. So just pause for a moment. And think about depression. I know in a room this size that there are a number of people, maybe many, who battle depression. Depression, despair comes, and it just, it has a finality to it. It has a certainty, doesn't it? That's where the hopelessness comes from, and it's relentless, pessimism darkness. The Sermon on the Mount is a promise of joy. If you battle depression, I want you to hear this sermon because your hopelessness is a lie. It's a lie. These promises, on the other hand, they are certain. Why? They are all yes and amen in Him. These come from Him. And he has guaranteed them. And so, one of the things we want to do, one of the most healthy things we can do is focus on Christ. Get our minds off ourselves and focus on him. That's what this series is going to allow us to do. The Sermon on the Mount's about him. So, one sermon where the preacher is at the center. And we want to keep him there. And we want to think about him. And when we do, we have good reason to hope.
There are eight Beatitudes. They begin and end with the promise of the kingdom. This one, verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Down in verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's about the kingdom, that's the password. There's a promise and an exhortation in each beatitude. Congratulations, here's what you will receive. Here is the life you ought to live. There is a sequence in the Beatitudes. So the first one is the most important. And that's why he gets his own sermon this morning. Blessed are the poor in spirit. It's the key to all the others. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Lloyd-Jones says there is no one in the kingdom of God who is not poor in spirit. It's the fundamental characteristic of the Christian. Everything else comes from this. Poor in spirit. What does it mean? It means humble. It's the greatest virtue of all. It's the opposite of being haughty, arrogant, self-sufficient, self-secure, self-promoting, self-confident. Poor in spirit really means emptying. We see our need. We see our weakness. It, it immediately makes it clear that the Sermon on the Mount is not something we can do ourselves. We shouldn't think of this sermon as the new law. The first thing we notice about this sermon, sermon is that it, it gives us the goal and it says to us, you can't do it. You're incapable in and of yourself, in your own strength, of living out this sermon. You cannot do it. Try to do it in your own strength. And you reveal you don't understand the sermon. I think we live in a society that is legalistic. The Sermon on the Mount, it needs to be said, is not a program for us to follow. Where Jesus looks at us and says, just do it, like Nike. Just do it. That's not what this is about. Blessed are the poor in spirit. It's, it's not about finances necessarily. The point here is the poor are most often the humble. The rich, most often the proud. But it's not about economics. It's not about material possessions. The poor man is no nearer to the kingdom of heaven than the rich man. Poverty doesn't guarantee spirituality, that you're poor in spirit. Jesus is concerned about poverty of spirit. The password to the Sermon on the Mount is what? Kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom. It's a poverty of spirit. It's an attitude of a man toward himself. He's not wise in his own eyes. He's not strong in his own eyes. It's, it's a grasping. 
of our own spiritual weakness. And Lloyd-Jones says, you will never find a greater antithesis to the worldly spirit. This is exactly the opposite of the world. Think about it for a minute. Let me help you. Think about songs of the world and songs of the kingdom. You ever heard the song, I'm the man? What's the guy's name that sings it? I can't say it. Allo something. I'm the man. Well, you can tell everybody. Yeah, you can tell everybody. Go ahead and tell everybody. I'm the man, I'm the man, I'm the man. Yes, I am, yes, I am, yes, I am. I'm the man, I'm the man, I'm the man. Wonderful lyrics, wow. I'm not sure you're the man when it comes to poetry. I believe every lie that I ever told, paid for every heart that I ever stole. I played my cards, I didn't fold. Well, it ain't that hard when you got soul. This is my world. <laughs> Somewhere I heard that life is a test. I've been through the worst, but I still give my best. This is what always gets me. God made my mold different from the rest. Then he broke that mold. So I know I'm blessed. This is my world. And to go back to my generation, how about Frank Sinatra? I did it my way. When he died, this is the song they played over and over again. They could have done, fly me to the moon, and I would have been so happy. They did it, they played, I did it my way, again and again and again. And now the end is here, and so I face that final curtain. My friend, I'll make it clear. I'll state my case of which I'm certain. I've lived a life that's full. I traveled each and every highway, and more, much more, I did it, I did it my way. Regrets? I've had a few, but then again, too few to mention. I did what I had to do. I saw it through without exemption. I planned each charted course, each careful step along the byway, and more, much more, I did it, I did it my way. Congrats for the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This isn't your world. You think you're the man? You aren't blessed. You can do it your way, but you won't live a full life. You will have regrets, and you will not be happy in the end. But the world values this self-reliance, self-confidence, self-expression. You want to be a good salesman. You need to have this kind of confidence, they say. And that's what's behind all man's attempts to produce the perfect society. There's, there's a tragic confidence in education, medical science, politics, constitutions, laws, all good things. But they don't save men and transform them deeply. We all have a need for that. And this verse is an absolute contrast to this. What about songs of the kingdom? Think about Rock of Ages. We're going to sing this in a minute. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, 
Look to thee for grace. Foul, I to thy fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Nothing in my hand I bring. That's how you enter the kingdom of heaven. Nothing in my hand. When Jesus says, let me, let me see your hands. You don't want to have good works in there. You don't want to have, I did the Bible reading plan. It's, it's about confronting God, not other men. Actually, if we confront other men, we may measure up okay. But when we confront God, we will echo Isaiah's words in Isaiah 6. And he says this in Isaiah 57. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place. And also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite, the poor in spirit. This is what Jesus is after. The poor in spirit, we don't feel worthy in God's presence. We shrink from greatness. We call him great. Isaiah stood before God and pronounced a woe on himself. That's what prophets did. They would come to your town and say, woe to this town. It was a curse. When he stood before God, Isaiah pronounced a curse on himself. Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. He was poor in spirit. Poor in spirit, don't boast. There, there's a complete absence of pride, self-assurance, self-reliance. We don't rely on our ethnicity, our family, our nation, our natural abilities, our, our positions, our education, our college, our gifts, our talents. To be poor in spirit is to feel that we are nothing. We don't have anything in our hands when we come before God. And we look to him. We, we submit to him. We ask for mercy. Our friend Bob Coughlin will be here in a few weeks. He went through a, had a terrible bout of depression at one point in his life. And a mutual friend of ours, a pastor, at one point said to him, you know, I think your problem, Bob, is you're not hopeless enough. And it really made the difference. It helped him be poor in spirit. The Sermon on the Mount is going to help us think about the kingdom. It's about the king. It's the king sitting with his followers, his subjects. Telling them, this is what life in my kingdom is like. It's going to help us think about him and not ourselves. How do you enter the kingdom? The good news always has two sides, doesn't it? There's a breaking down and a building up. There's a death and a resurrection. 
You begin with poor in spirit. I come with nothing. And then we trust the Lord by faith to raise us up. We repent of our selfishness and our pride. And we come to him. So be different. Be poor in spirit. How how do you cultivate this humility? Well, let's consider him. Let's see who God is. Let's study the Ten Commandments. Let's read the Scriptures. Let's look to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's be more and more hopeless in ourselves and more and more confident in Him. Let's pray. Father, help us with our pride, Lord. Father, help us. Help us see your greatness and your glory. And help us see, Lord, how much we need you spiritually. Lord, let us, let us see with the eyes of our heart. Let us see your kingdom. Let us see the king with the eyes of our heart, Lord. Because the king is good. The king is merciful. And we can come to him to receive grace to help in time of need. In Jesus' name. You've been listening to a message given by Bill Kittrell during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, visit us at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865-694-4356. We'd love to have you join us in our mission to treasure, grow in, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ.